You can have your uh, Bibles handy this evening. We are technically in 1 John 2, 2 still. Uh, however, tonight is going to be significantly more of a topical or a thematic uh, sermon. It kind of was last week as we spoke through the gospel. I will be summarizing some of that again uh, this week as we begin our time together. Uh, but we are going to be very, very thematic this evening. Last time, we were considering the gospel, and we considered it quite directly. Particularly, we considered its reach unto the sins of all men, past, present, and future. And as we considered this point, we then related ourselves to that point, and through it made the assertion that as we consider the reality of eternal punishment and its basis... The basis for that punishment, as the scriptures seem to, seem to teach it, as the scriptures seem to, to express it, is not directly the sins that men commit, much to the rather, the sins that men commit are a testimony or a symptom of the problem, not necessarily the problem itself. The problem itself is that men have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The Bible says this many times. We looked at that in several of those last week. But perhaps the most well-known of these is John 3, 18 through 21. Of course, normally we'd begin back at John 3, 16, but it's 18 through 21 where we see this part of the teaching, where Jesus says, He that believeth on him, that would be Jesus Christ, is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For every one that doeth evil hateth the light. Neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. Notice the subtle interrelation, distinction between the deeds that a man does and coming to the light. Man rejects the light, not in that their deeds were evil, but because their deeds were evil. The rejection of the light is not rooted in the fact they do evil deeds. The rejection of the light is because they do evil deeds. It is not that a man does evil deeds that says he is not in the light. Because a man can do an evil deed, can confess it before the Lord, and step back into that light if he has already come to faith in Jesus Christ. But rather, it is the fact that when a man sees the light and recognizes what Jesus has offered on the cross, he says, I don't want that light because I love my sin, because I love my deeds, because my deeds are evil, and because I love those things. Their evil deeds reflect the condition of their heart. But the condition of their heart is that they are condemned because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. If they would come to that light, if they would rest in that light, then through that light their deeds would be changed. For no man can walk in the light and not be changed. And subtle though it may be, this is an inversion of how many people perceive the gospel. And we talked about that last week. John told us then in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanseth us from all sin. If we walk in the light, that light will go through the active process of cleansing us from our sin. It will also unite us with our brethren, for we who are in Christ. 
But it all begins with stepping out of darkness, coming out from under the condemnation of loving darkness rather than light, rooted in refusing to believe in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus would then say in John 5, 24, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. The man who passes from death unto life is not the man who has found sinless perfection, nor is it the man who is determined to be moral, but it is the man who hears Christ's words and believes on him that sent him. But there's one more topic that I want to talk about before we move past 1 John 2. Chapter, uh, chapter 2, verse 2. We have talked now about the gospel and, and the relationship. And, and this is an a issue that uh, is connected to, very closely to the ideas that I spoke about last week, related to the fact that the gospel, as it's presented in, in, throughout all of the New Testament, and as it's very clearly taught in 1 John 2, 2, says that Jesus died not just for the sins of some, but for the sins of the whole world. So 1 John 2, 2 says, and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We find ourselves in interesting days in the church. It has often been said that history repeats itself. I uh, prefer to kind of think of it not so much that history is repeating itself because it really isn't, right? But rather that history kind of rhymes, right? The same things. We fight the same battles over and over and over again. People uh, come to the same issues over and over and over again. Uh, a lot of times we'll talk about it. We'll talk a little bit this evening about the idea of a pendulum swinging, right? History swings one way and then because that way kind of finds itself out of balance at some point, the history will swing back the other way and then when that seemed to be out of balance, it'll swing back this way and when we we get back to this pendulum swing on the other side, you kind of feel like history is repeating itself, right? History has been there before. Mankind has been there before. New context, new people, new, new uh, flavor, new cultures, whatever it might be, but the same problems, the same issues, the same battles, and the like. In a very real way, thus, there is something to this idea that specifically, because God's design does not change and men don't really change, the battles that were fought and won today will need to be fought and won again in some subsequent generation. Because evil is always evil, good is always good, and every generation will face these things. Now, the past couple of decades have witnessed a very interesting resurgence of the church, in the church, excuse me, of a certain theological system that is typically called Reformed theology. And this system, as all systems, cannot necessarily be put neatly into a box because different people look at things different ways. But as a general rule, it harkens back to the theology of the 15th and the 16th centuries in the years following what we call the Reformation or during really the Reformation. This was a time when culture was actively detaching itself from a generations-long influence of the Roman Catholic Church, a very top-down influence over not just religion, but really over everything, over governments, over uh, effectively the entire Western world. And as, as societies and cultures were detaching themselves from that influence, it was laying the foundation for what really would become modern Western culture from that time to, uh, we would probably at, at the very least say World War I. Uh, World War I is when the shift began 
And that shift kind of climaxed with the sexual revolution of the 60s. The resurgence of Reformed theology has been in many ways a response to the steady growth, primarily since the 60s, of a compromised Christian church that has preached a prosperity gospel or a gospel that deeply minimizes personal holiness, a gospel that regards no church authority, a church that has become out of balance. We can see that, that, that tipping into the out-of-balance area beginning in the, late eight, uh, in the late 19th century, in the late 1800s, and then into the 1900s with what was called coined neo-evangelicalism. But it really did not find its, its strongest foothold until that time in the 50s and the 60s and then into this new paradigm for culture in the 60s and following. And as we've talked about so many times before, as I referenced this is a very common thing as it relates to human nature. That a generation grows up in the shadow of certain errors in the generation that has gone before. And because that generation sees those errors, it reacts strongly against those errors, often separating themselves as far as they can to get away from those errors. And in doing so, they tend to pendulum swing past a point of accuracy and into another equal but opposite imbalance on the other side of the equation to be as far as possible away from the imbalance that they found, that they, that they resented or that they did not like. And as I've often exhorted you before, so too will I do again, that when you see two dramatic and opposing viewpoints of the scriptures within a church, the church, not necessarily within a single church, but within the church brought, uh, writ large, and you're trying to understand where the truth lies how you're going to orient yourself to truth and to these opposing viewpoints, generally begin your search right about in the middle. And then you can start to kind of lean one way and lean another and see how that goes. Because God is a God of balance. And this is what has happened in modern times with men who knew that the lack of holiness and irreverence in the church bore no resemblance to the Christianity taught in the Bible. A whole generations of people who heard teaching that bore very little resemblance to the holiness of God, to the righteousness of God, to the reality of, of authority. And as they saw those things, they went looking for holiness and reverence. It's got to be somewhere. I'm going to go looking for what I know is missing from, from, from what I'm hearing preached. And as they went looking for it, they found it in a place where holiness, where uh, uh, the, the, the character of God was extolled, where the holiness of God is extolled, where there's a tremendous amount of reverence and authority. And that was in Reformed thinking. And as men often do, they said, well, because Reformed thinkers were correct in this area that the church is obviously not correct today, correct in their their perception of Christian reverence and divine holiness, I'm going to swallow everything that the Reformed thinkers thought. And that's very common and that's very natural. And in doing so, what they actually did is they threw away hundreds of years of positive biblical development in Christian theology. See, what happened was the Reformed thinkers were coming out of Catholicism. It wasn't called the complete break from the Catholic Church. It was called the Reformation because they weren't looking to break from the Catholic Church. They were looking to reform the Catholic Church. And so they started thinking 
and they were finally freed to begin thinking. And then over the course of generations, hundreds of years, that thinking was directed, redirected, certain things that were, that were initially there as natural reactions against the Catholic Church were recognized to perhaps be insufficient, to perhaps uh, uh, miss. Uh, misplaced certain priorities within the church, and there was a development of theological thinking over the years. And what has happened is because that development overdeveloped into error, particularly in the last 70, 80 years, people said, we need to go back. And they went back a little bit farther than perhaps they should have. They went back to those who were jaded and coming out of the Catholic Church when in fact, in doing so, they left on the table many, many hundreds of years, a couple hundred years, of legitimate and positive continued theological development in the church. So the 15 to 1700s, the ideas that primarily held sway in the church as it related to salvation was rooted in a branch of Reformed theology that we call Calvinism. These ideas would begin to give way through the ministry of a man named Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a Calvinist, but he was what they called at the time a new light Calvinist. And there was a real theological debate in the day between what were called the old light Calvinists and what were called the new light Calvinists. And the strange thing about these new light Calvinists is that these new light Calvinists were, had this deep urge to share the gospel even though their theology had taught them for generations that God chose who would be saved and who would not. And so it really didn't matter if you shared the gospel because the people that were in were in and the people that were not were not. So what you do is you get everyone into church and the people who are going to be in are going to get it and the people who aren't going to be in can't get it anyway. But you make sure that everyone's there so that, so, so that everyone can have this opportunity. And then you, you don't preach the gospel you just preach things about the Bible and then the gospel kind of falls upon those who are chosen. But Jonathan Edwards kind of threw this on its head a little bit. Jonathan Edwards was a part of a movement to bring a significant amount of gospel preaching into the, the concept of the church. And that was in the mid-1700s. This transition of thinking began to take place. This new system, as I said, it was originally called New Light Calvinism. It was most prominently represented at the time as this transition was taking place. It was most prominently merged with what we would call Baptistic thinking. And uh, there was a, the, the, dramatic, the dramatic difference would then become between the Calvinists and the Baptists. And then there was a bit of a confusion when you uh, hit a little bit later because Charles Spurgeon, one of the most prominent Baptists who's ever lived, was also a Calvinist, so he kind of merged those things back together. But the Baptistic tradition would become what we now know today generally as evangelicalism. And of course, it would splinter off and split off as Protestant religions always do. Uh, and that, that concept of evangelicalism would then bring into... Um, into formation a new age where there was an intense and a deep desire to share the gospel under the conviction that men have a free will and that men need to hear the gospel in order to respond to it. And this, of course, launched the great missionary movements of 
1700s, and into the 1900s. Now, I'm not going to take the time to talk about all of these systems today, but I do want to speak directly to this resurgence in Calvinism. And while I will briefly touch on all of the tenets, uh, the focus, of course, is 1 John 2.2, but it really is kind of a launching point. Uh, I I will... um, We'll go through all of the tenets of Calvinism and we'll talk about them. Now, historically, Calvinism has been broken into five points. There are many Christian circles who will study those points and will agree with a couple of them, disagree with others. And so you might hear the idea uh, espoused, I am a four-point Calvinist or I am a three-point Calvinist. And while it's entirely understandable that people read those points, they think through what those points seem to say, and then they agree with certain points and don't agree with certain points, if you actually are familiar with Calvinism and Reformed theology and how Calvinism is constructed as it relates to salvation, you really can't be anything other than a five-point Calvinist. All five points are intricately connected to each other. So if you lose one, you actually lose them all. Everything comes toppling down if you don't have all five. If you disagree with one, then that the, the actual, the whole system, the way the Calvinist actually defines the system, historically, the whole system comes crashing down. And I say that very carefully because Calvinism is a set of points that is built up in a very clean system, a very logical system, But it's not necessarily a system that's built on a clean biblical, as a clean biblical system. It's built to be a clean logical system. And there is a big difference between those two. It takes principles from the Bible and it logically extrapolates certain conclusions from those principles rather than allowing those principles to speak for themselves. And there's a big difference between that and proper interpretation where we allow the Bible to speak for itself. So let me introduce you, or perhaps walk you through again, for those of you that are familiar, to the five points of Calvinism. The five points of Calvinism are historically presented through the acronym TULIP. Each of these letters standing for a point within the system. And one of the important things to state very clearly about these five points is that, with the possible exception of irresistible grace, a Christian can take the words words presented here from any of these points and make them make biblical sense. So if I read total depravity, yeah, as I, as I would think of the idea that man is totally depraved, I 100% agree with that. As I think of unconditional election, as I filter that through what I understand the Bible to say about election, 100% agree with that. Limited atonement, if I, if I filter that through, I, that one's a bit of a stretch, but I could probably work out a way to make, to make sense of that one. Usually if a person is a three-point Calvinist, they're going to get rid of limited atonement and irresistible grace. If they're a four-point Calvinist, they, it depends on their viewpoints, they'll either get rid of limited atonement or irresistible grace, right? Uh, irresistible grace, that one's a little bit harder for me to, uh, to, to, to figure out, but I could actually work my way into that depending on when I decide that Grace happens within the system. And then finally, perseverance of the saints. That one's really easy, right, for us to think through. So this, it's, it's easy enough to think through that and to say, yeah, I, I agree with those points. I agree certainly with at least three of those points as I define them. But the question is, do you agree with them as Calvinism defines them? And this is something that happens quite regularly within theological circles. We all use the same words. 
We use the word salvation. We use the word baptism. We use the word repentance. We use the word atonement. We use all the same words, but we do not define those words the same ways. We have, we have lost the standard by which we take all of those Bible words and we actually filter them through a common definition so that we're on the same page. One of the things, if you're discussing with someone theological ideas, you have to define your terms. They use a word. They use salvation. They use atonement. They use sanctification. What do you mean by that? Because that's very, very important to any theological discussion. This is one of the problems about being a pastor. When I, when I preach, it's very possible that the words I'm using are not words. You're familiar with those words, but maybe you're not defining them the way I'm defining them. So I can get sometimes somewhat repetitious. And I'm telling you the way we define repentance. I'm telling you the way we define election and all of these things uh, semi-regularly because I don't want a person who just happens to find us on, it, on YouTube and starts listening to our sermons to say, oh, okay, he believes this because he used that word. Maybe, maybe not. So what matters is not what you and I think these points might mean as we read these little snippets. What matters is what these points mean within the system. So let's talk through it. Total depravity. That's the first point. Total depravity. As I just mentioned at first glance, that makes perfect sense. Man is indeed totally depraved. David said in Psalm 51, my sin, in sin did my mother conceive me. Paul quotes Psalm 53 verse 3 when he says in Romans chapter 3 verse 10 and 11, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. That sounds pretty depraved to me. And if that was all it meant, if, if total depravity simply meant Romans 3, 10, and 11, great, we're on the same page. But that is not what the Calvinist means when he says that we are totally depraved. What the Calvinist means is that because man is totally depraved, that word totally is the key there, because he is dead in his trespasses and sins, well, here's the thing, a dead man needs a resurrection before he can do anything. Before a man can respond to anything, a dead man must be revived. A dead man is a dead man. There is no stimulus. If I ask a dead man if he's thirsty, he's not going to talk to me. If I ask him if he's hungry, he's not going to talk to me. If I tell him that he has to eat, he's not going to respond because he is dead. A dead man can do nothing. He cannot in any way respond to spiritual stimulus. So the Calvinist says, well, the Bible says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Therefore, there is no capacity within a man to spiritually respond to anything unless there is an enlivening of his spirit. There must be a spiritual resurrection of this dead spirit, not only for a man to be saved, but well before a man is saved, there must be a resurrection of his spirit, a, an enlivening of his spirit to truth before he can even hear anything that the gospel actually has to say, before he can even become under actual conviction for sin, because conviction for sin is a spiritual work that cannot be done in something that is dead. So they take the idea of us being dead in our trespasses and sins, and they extrapolate that metaphor to its absolute furthest conclusion. And you'll see as we walk through the points that that's why these points are so closely linked. Because if, if a man is not totally dead and unable to even respond to truth until the Lord has enlivened that truth to him, until the Lord has given him the, the, the eyes to see, brought his spirit alive and given him faith, then nothing else can happen. And, and, and so these next points can't happen uh, within a totally depraved man. 
So we have this idea here that man is totally depraved. And yes, the Bible does say that we are dead in our sins. And now I could spend an entire series on Calvinism, right? So I'm going to give you some passages that would speak to where a Calvinist would go to prove this point. And I'll speak briefly a contrast to them. If you're truly troubled by these things and struggling with these things, if you have friends who are struggling with these things, I'd encourage you to spend more time with me or, or I can point you to a couple of other sermons where I've gone deeper into these things. John 6 does say, Jesus says, no man can come unto me except he is drawn of the Father. John 6 says that. And that's a good passage to try to prop up this idea of man is totally depraved. He cannot even come to God unless he is drawn of the Father. Yes, but then Jesus would go on to say in John 12, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Hmm. The Bible makes it clear that the carnal man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. 1 Corinthians 1 through 3. Okay, so the carnal man cannot discern the spiritual. Good point. If a man is dead in his trespasses and sins, he cannot discern the spiritual things. How can he hear of the spiritual nature of the gospel? Well, except Jesus said in John 16 that when he goes away, the comforter would come and would convince, would convict all men of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me and righteousness because I go unto my Father and of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. So Jesus said, yes, and Paul, Paul acknowledges, yes, the carnal man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. Of course, speaking there in context of things as it relates to spiritual concepts, but Jesus says the Spirit of God is also active in the world convincing all men of the things necessary to receive the gospel. Romans chapter 1 tells us that the unbelieving world does, in fact, understand from God's creation, not just of God's existence, but what else? Even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. God's eternal power, God's eternal authority are known to all men through the created world. So the idea of a man being dead in his sins meaning that he is incapable of understanding any spiritual truth is something which does not hold up to biblical scrutiny. It is a logical extrapolation of a biblical concept. Man is dead in his sins. Man must be drawn by the Father. Man, a carnal man cannot understand spiritual things. All of those are there, but they are limited in scope by other biblical truths. If I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. By other biblical truths, the Spirit of God is busy in the world, John 16 says, convincing men of sin and righteousness and of judgment. Romans chapter 1 saying that all men know of God's existence and His eternal power and Godhead through the created creation. To this end, it sounds good and logical, total depravity, but that doesn't make it biblically correct. Now we come to unconditional election. The second point of Calvinism is unconditional election. Once again, this sounds great. The Bible speaks regularly of the believers being the elect. That word, elect, meaning one who is selected or preferred above another. Those that are chosen. And of course, if there are those that are chosen, it is in contrast to a group that is not chosen. 
And the Bible speaks to this, to our election. But once again, this is where Calvinism leaves the Bible and moves to a logical extrapolation. And this logical extrapolation is, in fact, built upon the fact, uh, the way that they define total depravity. There are, all men are dead, and so they cannot respond to any truth except God give them that truth. So then who does God give that truth to? And this is where unconditional election comes in. The Calvinist says, believers are called the elect. Election means that they were chosen. Believers were chosen. Therefore, believers were chosen to be saved. Therefore, the thing that they were chosen to be is saved. Election, believers, Therefore, believers are elect. Therefore, they were chosen to be believers. And that's a great logical idea. But it's not a biblical idea. Add to this the concept in the Bible of predestination, presented most prominently in Ephesians chapter 1. The Calvinist says, God has chosen from the beginning of time who would accept him and who would not. We'll come to Ephesians chapter 1 again in a little bit. Combine this, as I said, with total depravity and see how interconnected they become. Man is 100% incapable of spiritual comprehension, 100% incapable of spiritual compulsion. But there are those who God chooses to enliven to these spiritual truths. Therefore, those who God has chosen to enliven to these spiritual truths must be those who then God chooses to be saved because if he enlivens them, and this will come back in in Irresistible Grace, if he chooses to enliven them, well, there's a, well, God is sovereign, God is perfect, God is all-knowing, so why would he choose to enliven someone if he's not going to bring them to salvation? Therefore, he knows who's going to be saved, he has chosen them to salvation, so he only enlivens those who he's chosen to be saved. And again, this is a a very tight, logical system. Interesting and, and, and actually quite consistent in itself. Many good qualities, except that it's not what the Bible says. That's the most important quality. The Bible, the concept of election and predestination in the Bible is never connected to a condition much less to the specific condition of being saved. Go through every passage on election, Old Testament or New. Go to every predestination passage in the New Testament, and you will never see a passage that speaks of predestination or election in the context of salvation. Much to the contrary. Uh, even, Even into the context of any condition. Much to the contrary, It is always connected to a purpose. You are chosen not unto a condition, but unto a purpose. So that a man does not get saved because he is one of the chosen. Much to the contrary. A man is one of the chosen because he got saved. May I make that distinction again? A man... Did not, a man does not get saved because he is one of the chosen. A man is one of the chosen because he got saved. And the, the illustration I typically give of this is the military, right? We have a branch of the military called the Marines. 
And there was a, a time, I don't know, I haven't watched TV in a really long time, but there was an advertisement at one time, the few, the proud, the Marines, right? They were the few and the proud. Well, you can't say that a person is the few and the proud before they become a Marine. They become one of the few and the proud when they pass boot camp. They get out of boot camp. They are now one of the few and the proud. They become one of the elect. They become one of the elite. They become one of the few and the proud. They become one of the chosen few when they enter into the Marines. They did not enter into the Marines because they were one of the chosen few. They weren't born Marines, identified as Marines, and then ushered into their Marineship. No. They chose to enter into the Marines. They entered into the Marines, and when they entered into the Marines, they became one of the chosen. They became one of the few. They became one of the proud. What is it then that God has chosen all of those who would be saved unto? Well, go to any passage that teaches about election or predestination in in relationship to the church, and you'll find that the objective of election or predestination is not salvation, but sanctification, specifically obedience. Let's take a look at a couple of these just to make this clear. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And it continues. See, Pastor? Ephesians 1 says that we have been chosen before the foundation of the world. Yep, I agree with that. The Bible says it. I believe it. Unto what? Holiness and blamelessness. Right? Okay, so does it actually say I've been chosen to be saved? Who becomes holy and unblameable in his sight? Those who get saved. So who is chosen to be holy and unblameable? Those who get saved. God has set up an institution in the heavenlies called the church. It is the assembly of all of those who believe on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. That church, that assembly, is an assembly of the righteous, the righteous in Christ, the saved in Christ. And God says, that assembly called the church, I have predestinated that assembly, I have chosen and elected that assembly to be holy and without blame before me. And everybody who steps into that assembly steps into that election, steps into that predestinated purpose that God has chosen from day one for those who will believe on him. Yes, but it says here that we are predestinated unto the adoption of children. Isn't that salvation? Having predestinated us unto the adoption of children, the adoption of children, that's what we say, right? I've been adopted into the family of God. I am adopted. Therefore, isn't that mean that I have been predestinated to be saved? Well, if that's what adoption meant, well then yes, but that's not what adoption is. In Romans chapter 8, and by the way, Romans was written by the same guy that wrote Ephesians. In Romans chapter 8, verse 23 The Bible says that adoption will take place at the redemption of our bodies. It says that all creation groans for that time, the adoption to wit, the redemption of our bodies. When are our bodies redeemed? My body has not been redeemed yet. I can tell you that. I've got this this wrap on my arm because my arm is still aching. It's been months now and I'm still working on it. I'm waiting for my redeemed body. I'm looking forward to my redeemed body. There's aches, there's pains. 
It gets tired. It gets hungry. I've got to do all sorts of crazy things to keep myself from getting fat. This is not a redeemed body, but that redemption is coming. And the minute that I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, I stepped into a group. That group is called the church, the, the, the assembly of the faithful, the believers. And that assembly is moving in a singular direction that God has chosen for it from the beginning. And that direction is that I will be holy and without blame before him in love. That direction is that there is coming a day when I will receive the adoption of sons. Today, I call myself adopted because it's as good as already there, but it hasn't actually happened yet. The adoption of children happens on the day of the resurrection. And I'm predestinated unto that day. And the church has been predestinated unto that day since the very foundation of the world. And I stepped into that predestination the minute that I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. See, none of these things actually say that I've been elected or predestinated to be saved. Only that I've been elected and predestinated as one who is saved unto something one day unto a purpose, unto holiness, unto sanctification, unto obedience, unto the adoption of sons. These verses in no way demand the idea that people have been chosen to be saved. Well, what about Jeremiah? God says before, uh, when, when you were in the womb, I knew you and I chose you. Chose him unto what? Go look at the passage. Does it say chose you to be saved? No, I chose you to preach to the nations. That's not a condition that's a purpose. God chose him to do something, not to be something. It's a big difference. It's a subtle difference, but it's a big one. It's just as valid, I would argue much more valid, to interpret these verses to mean that everyone who does get saved is immediately ushered into the bride of Christ, which is the church, which God has eternally ordained to be presented holy and unblameable before him at the adoption to wit the redemption of our bodies. One more passage for clarity. Again, I'm going to jump very much into context, but it's the other big one, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Speaking of those who Peter is writing to, he says that they are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And then he says, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So Peter calls his readers the elect. He says that they are the elect according to God's foreknowledge. So God, knowing things before they happen, has thus elected this group of people. But elected them unto what? Does it say here salvation? It says here unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Aha, the blood of Jesus Christ, that's salvation, right? New Testament in my blood. We did it in the Lord's table tonight. Well, we've already covered that. We covered that in 1 John 1, 7, right? Remember, I took you back to Hebrews chapter 10, where Paul speaks of the idea of the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And he speaks of it after he has already spoken of all the things regarding salvation. And then he says, therefore, let us draw nigh through the veil that is, that is his flesh by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. That is not, let us get saved. He already talked about getting saved earlier in the chapter. He is saying, let us be sanctified. Let us walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. We are 
We are elect unto what? Unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So these readers are elect. God knew that this body of, of the, that this body would be ordained, that is called the church. He has ordained for that body to exist since time immemorial. He has ordained that that group, that that elect group of people would, that, that the work that he began in them would continue until he finished it. That it would bring them into obedience, that it would bring them into sanctification, that it would bring them into adoption. But it never says that anybody is elect to be in this group, chosen to be in this group, predestinated to be in this group. That is a logical inference being made through a theological system. It is not a biblical interpretation. Now to the third point. We have total depravity. Second, unconditional election. Third, limited atonement. And again, this builds upon the first two, right? If the first two are wrong, the third makes no sense. Limited atonement says that because men are totally depraved and so they cannot even respond to spiritual things unless God awakens them to those spiritual things, enlivens them and gives them faith. And because there is only a subset of the world's population which are elect, whom God has chosen to be saved from eternity past, which by the way would mean that God has chosen everyone else not to be saved. That's a terrible thought. That's a terrible thought. So then when Jesus went to the cross, logically, if we think through this logically, men are totally depraved, can't help themselves. A subset of that population are chosen by God to be in the church and so to be awakened or enlivened. When Jesus went to the cross, because God already knew from time immemorial who would be saved and had already chosen them to be saved, which, by the way, I agree that God knew who would be saved. That's, that's natural and logical because God's already in heaven with us. He's outside of time. But just because he knows who will be saved doesn't mean he made them get saved. illustration of that. My typical, my typical illustration of that, right? If I receive tomorrow's newspaper today, except let's put it a different way. I don't know. Has football season started yet? If I received, I always, I always give this illustration in relation to football, but I don't even know if the season started yet. If I received, I know preseason had started at some point. If I received yes, today's newspaper yesterday, and we came into church this morning and I said, yep, yep, such and such a team is going to score this many points in the football game and such and such a quarterback is going to throw for this many yards and this many interceptions and his, his uh, passer rating is going to be exactly this. And I gave you all of those stats. And I, I, to the letter, just hundreds of stats all the way down. Well, there's two different things that I could assume. Number one, I could assume that I... One could assume that I made all of those things happen. That, that, that those things were already written. Or one could assume that I simply knew what was going to happen before it happened. Now, unless you could prove one way or another, one is just as valid as the other. Right? 
The fact that God knows what's going to happen does not intrinsically demand that he makes it happen. So to make that logical leap that says God knows what's going to happen, therefore he caused it to happen, is not a valid leap. It's a, it's, it's a logical fallacy. So they say when Jesus went to the cross, because God knew who would be saved, he only bore the sins of those who are the elect. All those who would be enlightened and enlivened to the truth. Therefore, the rest of humanity who are not the elect will undoubtedly spend the remainder of their eternity burning in the lake of fire for their sins. And if they're going to burn for their sins, then obviously Jesus didn't pay for their sins. Because if Jesus paid for their sins, then they wouldn't burn for their sins. Well, that's what we spent all last week talking about. I'm not going to go through it all. That's why I gave you a little summary at the beginning, though. The reason why I gave you that little summary at the beginning is because, as we talked about last week, it is entirely possible that Jesus can pay for the sins of the whole world and men can still burn in the lake of fire. Why? Because at the moment that Jesus paid for the sins of the world, God transferred the judgment from the Father to the Son. Now the Son has the authority for all judgment, and by the Son's judgment and according to the Son's authority, which He purchased on the cross with His blood— Those who enter into salvation enter there by believing on his name, by accepting what he's done on the cross. So that people that are burning in hell are not burning in hell for the sins that they committed per se. The sins that they committed are are evidences of why they deserve to burn in hell, but they are burning in hell because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Jesus does not have to pay for the sins and then the, the, the unbeliever double dip, right? Double pay. Nor does it demand then that Jesus only paid for the sins of some people to try to get around the theological problem of Jesus paying for sins that the men, that men will also pay for. Nope. It doesn't need to be one or the other. It's perfectly acceptable to say Jesus paid for the sins of all mankind, yet they will still spend an eternity in punishment because they have rejected that gift. They will burn in the lake of fire because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, because they have not accepted that that propitiation. They have rejected the one who paid the price. And they'll burn for that. They'll be punished for that. So we've already refuted this effectively in 1 John 2, 2, in that message last week. John 3, 16 says that God so loved the world that he sent his Son. Now, within the logical system of Calvinism, this doesn't have to mean that God sent his son to pay for the sins of the world. How do you get around that, Pastor? How do you get around the idea that God loved the world so he sent his son, but then he didn't pay for the sins of the whole world? Well, because those who are not chosen to be saved will actually be still glorifying God for all eternity their damnation will glorify God just as much as my salvation. All things will work to the glory of God. So the Calvinist says that when those people whom God has not seen fit to choose are in this place of the lake of fire, they are there testifying of God's glory, of God's holiness in that lake of fire for all eternity. Thus, God loves them for their testimony in damnation as much then as he loves those who are testifying of his, of, of his mercy. 
by being a trophy of his grace. Well, that's an explanation. It's not one I'm comfortable with. God does perhaps love those who would be trophies of his wrath and burn in the lake of fire for eternity as vessels fitted to destruction, but that's not the character of the God that, I'm, that I read in my Bible. It fits very nice into the system. It doesn't fit nice into how I read my Bible. And you see how each of these points is essential to build one upon another. Limited atonement only makes sense if men are totally depraved and so only an elect portion of them are enlivened to the truth. However, 1 John 2, 2, you can't get around that one. You can get around John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Very hard for the Calvinists to get around 1 John 2, 2. It doesn't just say that Jesus was sent because God loved the world. It says that Jesus, his blood was the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. I gave you a little glimmer into how you can kind of get around this one. They redefine the word propitiation to say that this is the means of propitiation rather than the propitiation itself. So they'd say, and he is the means of propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only, but also the sins of the whole world. Thus, Jesus's blood would be sufficient for the sins of the whole world, except it only is actually necessary for those who will be elect and everyone else doesn't factor in. And that's how they, that's how they describe that. But that's not what the words say. So 1 John 2, 2 testifies to the reality that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the whole world. Jesus paid for them all because Jesus came to undo in himself what was lost in Adam. Jesus paid for them all because the Father does love the whole world and because he wants to make a way for whosoever will to come, to be ushered into the election that is the church by responding to the drawing conviction of the Holy Spirit in their lives, which Jesus says, if he is lifted up, he will draw all men unto him. And so then those who receive this, who respond to this drawing will pass out of the condemnation of unbelief and into the everlasting life, which is given to those who believe on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved. And we believe this because this is what the Bible says. And then we build a system around what the Bible says. And if we build it properly, it will be consistent because the Bible is consistent. And if we come to something in the Bible which doesn't align with our system, we readily change the system to align with the Bible. We cannot build a system and then wrap the Bible around our system, which is unfortunately what those early Reformed theologians would do. And again, this is not to say, and, and let me be clear about this. We said a couple of weeks ago, briefly, I talked about the false teachers. And I said there are two types of wrong people. There are people with whom we disagree, but who love God. And we might see where their system, their beliefs, their understandings deviate from what the Bible says. But it's pretty clear that their intent is not to do harm to the word of God or the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'll disagree with these folks, perhaps strongly so. When it comes to Reformed theology, I'm actually in pretty strong disagreement. Furthermore, we may feel the need, as is the case for me in Reformed theology, to protect myself, to protect my children from these teachings, because I believe that Calvinism has led men and women into a place of true spiritual confusion. 
I don't want my children walking down that path. I think that that path is insidious. As a matter of fact, I think that in some ways, the closer an error is to the truth, the harder it is to differentiate and identify, and sometimes the more dangerous it can be. But that doesn't mean that the people who hold to the system are outright heretics. And every vestige of their contribution to the church must be rejected. We can recognize the errors of men like Martin Luther, men like Charles Spurgeon. It's a little bit harder to defend John Calvin. Uh, That guy was pretty messed up. But we can recognize these men's errors while also seeing how God was using them in their time and in their place and even ways that we can still benefit from their teaching and ministry. We are able to chew the meat of their contributions to the faith while spitting out the bones of their blind spots and errors, perhaps rooted in uh, stubbornness, perhaps rooted in their time. And we can do that. And I really hope that we can Because I really hope that men extend that courtesy to me and my teaching. That they would chew the meat of my teaching and spit out the bones of my teaching and say, you know what, that man still might be profitable for something, even if he's not profitable for everything. I hope you do that with me. I I can't imagine that that, that, that you agree with everything that I've said, maybe even today. But I hope that you can give the benefit of the doubt to someone who, who, who is trying and who loves the Lord and to say, you know what? Pastor Wickler's not right about everything. I've disagreed with him this time and that time and that time. But this is a man who is not a false teacher that takes the Bible and does seek to draw from it the truth and to give that to, to you. And that's very different from the the heretic, the apostate. I had someone write me a, uh, several years ago now and, say, and, and ask me about the church. And he said, I really you know, like your website and I like your, your teaching and all that. What do you think of Martin Luther? And so I told him what I thought of Martin Luther. The man had a lot of errors, but you know, if I could be 1% as effective for the Lord, for the Lord, as Martin Luther was, I'd, I'd be pretty happy. And I don't mean 1% effective for, for culture or popularity. I mean for God. That man did some great things for the Lord. God used that man. If God would use me to 1% of Martin Luther's use, use I, I would be a very effective minister. I didn't hear from him again. But this is to be distinguished from the heretic and the apostate. Those who teach things which are not an extension of any true love for God, any honest reading of the Bible, they're carnal in motive, they're carnal in manifestation, they fleece the flock of God for earthly gain, they are willing to compromise the truths of God's word in order to adapt to culture, they are willing to compromise the truths of God's word in order to uh, maintain some standing, in order to please the people that are around them. These people are to be rejected outright without any regard for anything they teach, so that even if that stopped clock is in fact right twice a day, I'm not going to even regard that. I'm not going to place myself under that person. That person is compromised. And there's a difference between a person who is 
honestly wrong because he sees things differently or because he's a product of his time and a person who is compromised. And God help us to know the difference. Okay, we've got to finish up here. I'm going to keep you late. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement. Number four, the I, irresistible grace. The fourth point is irresistible grace. And once again, it is a point which is drawn uh, as a conclusion from the other points. If God is sovereign and has chosen who will be saved in an unconditional election, and that because these men, all of us, are totally depraved so that we cannot even want the things of the Spirit of God unless God uniquely enlivens our spirits to the things of the Spirit of God. So much so, in fact, that Jesus' blood is only shed for those who are these elect. Then at the moment that God awakens that Spirit, at the moment that there is an enlivening, at the moment that there is any light that is given to that person at all to understand these spiritual concepts, there is no possible way for that person to do anything other than become a child of God. That, that grace, once it is enlivened, once it is bestowed, once there is any enlightening, it, will, it is impossible but that that person will take, carry that grace all the way to its, its full conclusion and will be saved. The moment that God shed even the smallest amount of grace into the heart of that man, that grace is perfect because it's from God, right? If he enlivens a man to any little bit of faith, that faith, because God's the one that gave it to him, must be a perfect faith that will inevitably and invariably bear the fruit of belief. And it's actually this point that I have found often brings people into Calvinism. That they heard the gospel, and when they heard it, the conviction was so heavy, and the truths of it were made so clear to them, that the conviction was so strong that they, they truly perceived, if they think back on that day, they say, what else could I do? It was so obvious. It was so clear. It was so there. It was so, it was so, so terribly obvious that I, I couldn't do it. There was no way I could say no to it. It was as plain as the, as the nose on my face. I had to say yes. I had to receive it because it was so obvious. So that experientially, they could testify that the grace of God, which brought conviction to their heart, was irresistible to them. And that's wonderful. Praise God for that. But that doesn't mean that that's what everyone experiences. Because the Bible doesn't teach that. It's a, logical, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a logical outworking of everything else that's been to this point. That if indeed men are totally depraved the way the Calvinist defines it and unconditionally elect as the Calvinist defines it, and if, if, if the atonement of Christ is limited as Calvinism defines it, well then irresistible grace makes perfect logical sense and the experience of many within, within the movement would say, yes, I've experienced that myself, where when I came to Christ, it was irresistible. Okay? So are you saying that anybody who claims to have come to Christ where they said, you know what? I was, I was this close to saying no and walking away. And then I said, okay, God, I'll give this a shot. Or those people who have testified, you know what? God had to drag me kicking and screaming into the kingdom. Those people's testimony is invalid? Because they did not perceive that grace? Oh, no, 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 no. It's just that they didn't perceive it to be irresistible. Well, now you have a non-falsifiable thesis, right? 
It was irresistible. You just didn't know it was. You, you were tugging against it and you at any time feel as though you could have walked away, but you didn't, did you? You want to know why? It's because it was irresistible. Well, I can't refute that. I mean, I came into grace. So maybe it was irresistible, non-falsifiable thesis. I can't disprove it. It doesn't mean that everyone has that experience and certainly the Bible doesn't teach this. Much to the contrary, the Bible speaks of men who knew of the power of God and rejected it, doesn't it? Beyond just rejecting it. 2 Peter 2 and Jude both speak of false teachers. And as it describes them, 2 Peter says that they are those who have tasted the heavenly gift. But instead of accepting that gift unto transformation and unto redemption... They take that heavenly gift that they had just tasted. They, they came into a knowledge of it. They understood what the gospel said. And they turned around and they said, I can monetize this. This can be good business. And they fleeced the flock of God. That's what 2 Peter teaches. That's what Jude teaches. Was Herod not almost convinced to be a Christian? Did Pharaoh not see the work of God? And yet they walked away. They rejected it. Perhaps the most poignant testimony of this truth being out of Jesus' own mouth. When Jesus, before his entry into Jerusalem was to be crucified, wept before the city. And what did he say on that day? Luke chapter 13, verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. That phrase literally meaning, phrase literally meaning you were not willing. It is not that God was unwilling. It's not that God did not send his prophets from generation to generation to compel them to believe and to repent. But rather, for all of the prophets that he sent, the final one being Jesus Christ himself, I will send my son. They've, they've killed, they've rejected my servants. Now I will send my son, the parable says. For all that, whom were sent, Jesus said, I would have gathered you. But you said no. I would have given you everything. But you rejected my offer. I offered you grace. And you resisted it. One more point. Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, finally perseverance of the saints. Every once in a while, you'll find someone who will generally, at least a little ironically... <laughs> Uh, call themselves a one-point Calvinist. And when you find one of these particular unicorns, it is most often that this is the point that they would believe in. I'm a one-point Calvinist because I believe in perseverance of the saints. Because many people who believe in free will but reject the logical system of Calvinism do believe the doctrine, our church included, that is summed up simply by saying, once saved, always saved. But as we've seen throughout, so too with this point, 
the way the Calvinist defines this point is not necessarily the way you're thinking. So remember, I have said that Calvinists, as Calvinists define this point, they are building one thing upon another. This point is no different. So, because man is totally depraved, he does not even have the spiritual ability to understand the gospel. Rather, God must create in him the understanding and the faith, and then create in him, through this faith, the ability to receive and understand it. And he will do so in those whom, for whom Christ has died, because though there's only a subset of the population for whom Christ died. His atonement is limited to those who are unconditionally elect. And for those whom Christ has died through unconditional election, he will enliven their faith and bring them into this. In that God's gift of grace is a perfect gift, God's gift of faith is a perfect gift, anyone who is enlivened by this grace will inevitably receive it, that once that work begins, God will without fail continue that work to its end and then begin that work of sanctifying. And because this has been the work of God from the beginning, it is perfect. And so anyone who is elect will always be elect. It's unconditional. There's no in, there's no out. You're there, you're, you're, you're elect. You've always been elect. You will be elect. You will persevere in your faith until the day of your death when you meet your reward. Yes, once again, once saved, always saved. But logically, it's so much more than that. Logically, this idea demands that a believer in whom God has created faith will never walk away from that faith. Will never, and indeed can never, fall into complete carnality and backsliding. Will never and can never enter to, into a period of true and absolute doubt or fear over his faith. Why? Because to do so would imply that God's gift of faith to them was imperfect. How can God give faith to someone, enliven only the chosen few? You're one of the chosen. God gave you faith. God enlivened you. God chose you. God gave you all of this. God gave you his grace. It was irresistible. You had no choice in the matter because God is sovereign. He has drug you this far, and then he's going to drop you into carnality? Uh-uh. That wouldn't happen in this system. It can't happen in this system. And this is where the problem comes in for many Calvinists. I told you before that, 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 that Calvinism does truly concern me. Now, again, I'm, I, I said that within the, the realm of chewing the meat and spitting out the bones, that these people aren't inherently heretics. But there are a good number of people who step into Calvinism and then they fall into deep confusion and sometimes personal torment or utter despair because they know what the gospel of Calvin says. That if God created in them faith, then God did a perfect work. But then they find themselves still struggling with sin. They find themselves still fighting this battle. And this leads them to the inevitable condition of doubting whether or not they're actually one of the elect. And the problem is, is that if you're not one of the elect, there's nothing you can do to become one. You were chosen before time began, or you weren't. And you're wondering whether or not you're bearing the fruit of one who is elect. See, because there has been this faith that has worked in you to where you understand the gospel, and you believe the gospel, but you haven't conquered your sin. And how does that work if God worked this in you? If you're one of the elect and he has awakened this faith in you, then how is it possible that you're carnal? 
That doesn't make any sense in the Reformed system. But the Bible says that no man stops sinning when he gets saved. We already covered that in 1 John. So the Calvinist who is honest about their system cannot acknowledge the idea that there can be such a thing as a carnal Christian, even though the entire book of 1 Corinthians is dedicated to the idea. Perseverance of the saints, as Calvinism defines it, is a natural, logical outworking of the other points. If they exist, so too this must exist. But it doesn't really make biblical sense. And I've not taken the time, indeed, as I said, I could do an entire series on this. I'd love to take you through Romans 9 through 11 and talk through it. We've talked through it before in various other contexts. I'd love to spend more time in Ephesians 1 and John 6 and 1 Peter chapter 1 and walk you through all of that. There's just not time this evening. But I hope I've said enough to give us a, a perspective here. And, and in, 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 in a very real way, as 1 John 2, 2 precipitated this night and this topic, in a very real way, I think 1 John 2.2 2 is the great monkey wrench in the whole system because it's all interdependent upon itself. All five points have to be together or they crumble. 1 John 2.2 2 becomes a real problem if we take it at face value. And so as we close, let me just say this. Systems are wonderful and useful things in the church. We build systems to help take all of the ideas from a very, very big book called the Bible on a singular topic or on a, a, a set of topics that we can group together in some way, and we combine them into a system so that we can foster greater understanding and clarity regarding the Scriptures. And then we teach these things as a system so that if I say the word dispensationalism, or I say the word Calvinism, or I say the word Arminianism, or I, uh, or, or I, I um, say the word premillennialism. If you have been taught the system, then all of that flood of understanding can, can rest on you, and I don't have to spend all my time telling you what it means again, because I've already taught what it means, and now I've got a word for a system, and then I can talk about implications of the system with just a word. Very convenient, very helpful, very handy. But as we've stated, and as I believe, I, I hope at least in part I've shown today, and I always try when I do these messages not to give the weakest arguments of that which I'm concerned with, but the best arguments. Because if all we can do is defend ourselves against the weakest arguments of some false system, then we're not doing any good to anyone. Can what we understand stand up to, hold up against their best arguments? That's what we need to do. Systems carry with them a danger, however. When we can become so convinced of a system that we allow what the system says to override what the Bible says, or we attempt to take what the Bible says and shoehorn it into our system because we're so convinced of the system. And of this, let us be warned. When we read the Bible we're going to always approach it from some understanding. And as that understanding grows, it will combine with what we have seen and what we have heard to formulate in us a measure of convictions regarding what it says. 
And then as we see and as we hear and as we learn more, we determine whether our new understanding is consistent with our previous understanding on these points. And if it is, then we gladly add it to the system. And if it's not, then we have a decision to make. And this is where we must have a method. And the method that I have always encouraged God's people to follow is to allow that which is clear in the Scripture to be the lens through which we interpret what is unclear. If the Bible very clearly and consistently says salvation is by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ alone, belief alone, well then I'm going to interpret the passages about repentance and about confession and about baptism through the clarity of the lens of what the Bible has already said. And if there's, there's no way to reconcile a passage with what I understand in clarity, well then, yeah, reassess what you think you understand. But it's the wrong way around to formulate a conclusion based upon a less essential truth or a set of logical values. Something that makes sense in my brain, though it's not necessarily in the text. It's wrong for me to formulate those as conclusions and then take what the Bible says and try to wrap it around those conclusions. Now, are there things that we believe that are not explicitly written in the Bible? Absolutely. But we have sought to draw them out in consistency with what the Bible says. We take what the Bible says first and then we draw out conclusions. We don't draw conclusions and then try to shoehorn the Bible into those conclusions. We don't change what the Bible says to accommodate what we want the Bible to mean. Because the goal of any Bible study, the goal of the Christian life, is not to know the Bible itself. The goal of any Bible study, the goal of the Christian life, is to know the God of the Bible. And if, in my quest to understand the Bible, I do injustice to the character of the Bible, of the God of the Bible, excuse me, I have not only undermined my own purpose, but I have laid the foundation for those under my influence or those in further generations to be undermined as well. Let us instead be determined that we are going to take the word of God. We are going to read it at face value. We are going to understand the character of the God that undergirds that word. And then we are going to build up a system on the basis of what the Bible actually says. Drawing logical conclusions when those logical conclusions are 100% consistent, if we must. Certainly not staking our flag in those logical conclusions, but only in the things that the Lord has told us. And if we do that, we're going to be okay. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.